Welcome to Mamir's Well, a Burning Hallows production. We are your hosts, Kitty and Alora. And welcome to the podcast that isn't afraid of taboos and controversy and witchcraft. This is the official first subscription episode. What, what? <laughs> In today's, thank you. Thank you. In today's controversial episode, we are exploring the world of the beautiful, but deadly, the poison path. We will explore working with baneful herbs, plant spirits, flying ointments, lore, poison gardening, and magical uses of intoxicants. To help us on our journey, we've recruited Kobe Michael. Kobe runs the Poisoner's Apothecary and has a brand new book titled The Poison Path Herbal, Baneful Herbs, Medicinal Nightshades, and Ritual Entheogens, set to release on October 12th and is already the number one bestseller in the category of toxicology. As a disclaimer, this podcast episode is for informative purposes only and contains the opinions of the individual practitioners present. If you seek to work with these herbs, you should always do your own research and consult the appropriate professionals before engaging in potentially harmful activities. Welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? What, what? <laughs> I'm excited. I am too. too. Kobe, we've been wanting to talk about this topic for a while, but we had to find the right person and you are it. <laughs> I'm honored. Yeah. Honored to have you. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Thank well, you guys so much. Yeah. And, and before we really get started, like before we take this magical trip through the gardens of hallucination, um, I just want to pass the mic over to you, Kobe, and let you introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you. Um, my name is Kobe Michael. I'm the head poisoner at the Poisoner's Apothecary. Um, I'm an author, entheogenic herbalist, occult practitioner, plant enthusiast, my hands in all, all sorts of different things. Awesome. You sound like a man of many talents. <laughs> yeah, I, I wear a couple different hats. For sure. All the right <laughs> talents. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So moving on to the good stuff, right? So Kobe, how did you get started on this path? And what advice would you give someone who's interested in pursuing maybe going down the poison path? Yeah, definitely. So I normally will tell the story of, you know, just how I grew up around plants, gardening with my grandparents and just always lived just very close to nature and had that appreciation for it instilled at a very young age. Um, but I always also had this sort of innate interest for um, the occult and witchcraft specifically. Uh, I was fascinated by witches you know, at, at very, very, very young. Um, you know, some of my favorite books that were read to me had witches as the main characters, my favorite cartoons, movies, um, mm -hmm. you know, even my Halloween costume for a few years in a row was the Wicked <laughs> Witch of the West. So awesome. Yeah, it's just something that's always been a part of me. Um, I think like all of us that that sort of find this path. It's just something that is so interwoven in who we are and how we perceive and interact with the world that it's hard to really pinpoint, I guess, an, an origin of, of something that's that connected to who you are as a, a being. Um, yeah. But as far as poisonous plants, I've been working with those for about 10 years and it was, um, you know, really just kind of looking for a more folkloric form of herb magic. Um, you know, I was studying a number of different traditions, specifically um, American hoodoo, conjure traditions, um, different recipes from the grimoire traditions and things like that. Just trying to kind of find something that was like a, a source of herbal information that 
sort of predated what was available as far as like the the neo-pagan movement um, mm-hmm. you know in the past 20 30 years and things and kind of see you know what were the primary sources that Scott Cunningham used to write his little encyclopedia where where is all of this information coming from because it mm-hmm. can't be just coming from these people out of the 1970s yeah so it was really, yeah really mm-hmm. for just you know looking for something more folkloric and more traditional and in that too a key to what that was for me was a, a practice that wasn't afraid of working with plants that are, were a little bit dangerous or dark and working with um, intentions or goals that may be considered taboo or more left-hand path or more manipulative or something like that. And they filled in all of those, all of those um, boxes for me. Very cool. Badass. Yeah, Love it. In- yeah. Massively interesting. And I was, actually just gonna say too like there's a saying that the difference between a poison and a medicine is the dose so Mm -hmm. I find that super fascinating yeah you said uh too I like how you said that you wanted to know where Scott Cunningham got his information from I've kind of I feel like I've been like that for a long time too I've always been the one that's like, okay, yeah, I, I love Scott Cunningham, but I want to know what did the books from a hundred years ago say about herbs or about the different folk traditions? So, um, yeah, we have that in common, I think. <laughs> nice. And that's, that's what I would definitely recommend to somebody that's interested in pursuing the poison path is, you know, the information up until kind of recently is, is just really scattered. Um, you know, so a lot of times you won't find magical information on poisonous plants in a lot of newer um, magical herbalism books. So kind of learning some of the, the older titles and things like that, like um, Richard Folkard's um, plants, plant lore legends and lyrics from the late 1800s. And mm-hmm. of course we have like the, the three books of occult philosophy we have a few mentions of different baneful herbs and things like that. So just kind of going on like that researcher's quest of kind of uncovering this, this old information in these primary sources. Yeah. And it's interesting too, um, because I feel like this, uh, researcher's path and this looking for the information behind the faces of Wicca, for example, is like what separates Wiccan practice from witchcraft practice. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys agree, but I feel like that's one of the main components because I feel like you adhere to certain personalities and certain leaders with Wiccan Mm -hmm. uh, practice. Yeah. Right. And there's not really a, a whole lot of digging beyond that. Yeah. That's a good point. Definitely. And not, not to say that there isn't, um, you know, definitely an academic aspect or, you know, historical basis there in, you know, Gardnerian, Alexandrian, Wiccan traditions and things like that. But it just in this, in this realm of more folkloric witchcraft, there is definitely, I think, more of a value put on information that comes from those older sources. I think that's kind of the guiding force behind what makes it, I guess, a more folkloric path or finding out the way that that the the local people of that certain area viewed something or worked with something. Right. Yeah. And I think like modern in modern anthropology, we call that um, ethnoscience, which is basically how the indigenous of a certain area come to understand and catalog and have a classification system for all the flora and fauna in their area. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Ethnobotany. Um, that's a, that's a word that will come up again and again when you're researching plants on the poison path, because so much of the lore and usage information that we have comes from all of these traditional indigenous cultures that have kind of maintained that information um, because as far as you know western practice has gone we've kind of lost our knowledge of that a long time ago and are just now getting it back mm. true mm. you're Very speaking true. to my soul and my brain <laughs> <laughs> okay so what are y'all's go-to poison herbs for magical workings and why now 
obviously kitties and mine won't be as cool, but we'll give it a go. But <laughs> Kobe, I think you have something pretty cool to contribute here. Um, definitely. Um, so my main plant spirit ally or poisonous plant that I work with on the most regular basis is Atropa belladonna or deadly nightshade. <clears throat> and that's kind of wrapped up in my whole belief and understanding about what the poison path is and how it relates to witchcraft. And um, there's, there's a lot of intricacy in there that, you know, you'll, you'll learn more about in the book, but it is my favorite one to work with just because it is so versatile and it's what I call a magical catalyst. So mm. it is a plant that it's so intimately associated with the spirit world, witchcraft and magical practice that beyond any correspondences that it may have, it adds potency to any working. And that is kind of a more of a plant master plant spirit kind of a thing, um, you know, a synergy between all of these different components working together, but um, you know, they can be added to, to literally any kind of a ritual for increasing their power, increasing their potency. Um, you know, there's, they're specifically allied to practitioners of witchcraft just because we've, you know, both kind of been maligned and ostracized and kind of lumped into this group of too dangerous to be handled. Um, so they share a really special affinity to us. So it's it's just through the imagery and, and symbolism and kind of language um, that the, the plant spirit speaks that just really connects with a lot of the things that um, sort of define me as a practitioner. That's oh awesome. God. I love that. I never thought about that, but that's so true. Um, I'm just going to tell a quick story along, along those lines. There was one time where I had said to my husband that I'd never seen, um, like American nightshade before, like up close. And the next week it was growing in my yard, like out of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Up, they pop up for sure. Yeah. yeah, they do. Laura, what's your, what's your, uh, go-to poison herb? Well, I don't have anything that articulate or cool to say <laughs> because <laughs> I was just listening to Kobe talk about that. And I was like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. Now I know <laughs> why too. you have a best-selling book. <laughs> right. I'm, yep. I'm, I'm gonna get it. It's, it's on my to get list. I know pre-ordering that. Thank you. For sure. Amazon. If I wasn't moving, uh, it would be already pre-ordered. Um, I would say of the poisons, I don't know why, but I love wormwood. Oh, you took my nice. answer. <laughs> Part of my answer. Well, we're too much alike, but I mean, I think yeah. I do know why a little bit. I feel like it's, it's something that can cause both pleasure and pain, hmm. so to speak. Um, because it was used to create absinthe, um, and it is still, it's still what you would use to create absinthe. Right. And so in, you know, minor dosages, absinthe creates a euphoric feeling, but if you use too much, right, then you're in trouble essentially because it's a poison. Um, and I feel like it's, I feel like a lot of these poison herbs, and I know that I'm going back to a previous, uh, otherworldly Oracle episode, but they're very liminal, right? Mm-hmm. So poison herbs are liminal herbs because in the one sense they aren't, uh, they're, they're in between medicine and poison depending yeah, on the that's dose. True. Good point. So you're yeah. going, so you're going back to working in liminal spaces with liminal physical things. And wormwood is just one of those herbs that I feel is like directly in the middle. Yeah. That makes sense. Definitely. Um, I like wormwood. I also have, uh, I've used bitter melon. If anyone knows what that is, Ooh, it grows wild. Um, or it's also called, what was that Kobe? I have not worked with that. Oh, really? Okay. So Mm -hmm. it grows actually, uh, locally here, but, um, it's, uh, it's also called balsam apple. And if you, okay. So once it's ripe and it has, it's basically an orange kind of spiky fruit that grows on a vine. And once it, 
it, the fruit itself will burst open and there's bright red seeds inside. So once it's at that point, it's poisonous and the seeds are most definitely poisonous. Um, but when I've worked with it, I just, I carefully dry it out and I don't, I haven't consumed it or anything of that nature, but I've used it to make, um, like talismans and, uh, stuff poppets and like things of that nature, but I'm too chicken shit to actually <laughs> cross that line yet. So, um, and I'm not an expert on this poison path by far. So I look forward to your book. Thank you. And that's, that's just like a great example to point out just with all of our different um, plants that we mentioned, you know, they're, they are on such a spectrum of, you know, what we consider poisonous. And while one might not necessarily kill you, um, you know, it might put you in the hospital or it might make you sick, or, you know, this one's definitely going to kill you. Um, you know, it's, it's not always black and white, you know, when we, when we say the word poisonous, so True. all different sorts of plants. That's true. Yeah. Um, the other one I actually grow in my garden is Dutchman's pipe. It's also called pipe vine. So that along the same line, I don't know that it would necessarily be considered a poison, but, um, when it was used by like Chinese herbalists, they would use it to treat, I think it was like female conditions, but they found that in a certain amount that it caused kidney problems. So it's technically considered a poison. So yeah, mm -hmm. that same kind of thing, what we're talking about. Definitely. And I, there's another one and I haven't worked with it person. Well, I haven't worked with it in a magical capacity, but I have a weird relationship with foxglove and it's because, so, um, I've had to take heart medication since birth pretty much. Um, and the, the medication I was prescribed as a kid, it was made from foxglove. And I've actually like OD'd on that medication, not on purpose, but on accident because they had to up my dosage. And, um, so that's yeah, a dangerous one. Yeah. And it's interesting mm -hmm. too, because they're like, if your vision goes yellow, then mm -hmm. you need to come to the hospital. Like, <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. So I think we talked another... about that once before Laura. Um, yeah, yeah it's, that's a pretty it, it can be dangerous. I remember when we gave it yeah. in the hospital, I would, you have to check the patient's heart rate for, um, 60 seconds, um, before you can give the medication. Like usually you'll cut corners and as a nurse and you'll, you'll just listen in for 15 seconds. And then you, you know, you multiply to get your, mm -hmm. your beats per minute, but for, to give that medication, you had to, to listen for the full 60 seconds. Cause it, yeah, that's dangerous. Yeah. And I think nowadays, um, cause that was back in the eighties. And so nowadays though, that medication specifically is not recommended for mm -hmm. our patients anymore. And no, I thought, you don't see it yeah, a lot. well, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At a exactly. young age too. <laughs> yeah, really. Oh yeah. From, I mean, I was an infant. So wow. from the time I was wow. an infant until I was 16, I was on a medication made from Foxglove. So mm -hmm. Digitalis. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. So I let's talk about flying ointments, right? So I have done a little bit of research I've experimented with, and I've formulated my own flying ointments for my personal use. So do you guys have a favorite flying ointment recipe, or maybe a secret ingredient that you like to use in your flying ointments? Maybe that might be unusual. Kobe, you want to take that one first? Sure. Um, I do have a favorite recipe. <clears throat> um, I won't tell you the whole recipe, but um, <laughs> I do have an upcoming flying ointment <laughs> class on October 1st. <laughs> oh, awesome. Ooh. Yeah. My, my ingredient that I would say is maybe secret or unusual is ashes. Hmm. So in all of these medieval flying ointment recipes, we see soot as a recurring ingredient. Um, oh. And it was in Journal of Anesthesiology in that this was actually added because of its alkalinity. And by raising the pH and increasing the alkalinity, we could increase the absorption rate of whatever was in the salve that we mixed it in. So by 
adding some soot or wood ashes, um, which have a more alkaline pH, uh, we're able to enhance the absorption of it um, because the vegetable oils just don't absorb through the skin quite as readily. So that would have been something to kind of help facilitate that. Wow. Okay. I was thinking of it from like a symbolic standpoint when you first said that, like, uh, um, you know, the old stories about witches flying up and out the chimney. That's what I was thinking when you said, Mm -hmm. so that's awesome. Yeah, there is an actual reason. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Imagine that. (laughs) Well, there has to be science behind all this stuff. Right. And I think it's cool that, that, there's people out there like Kobe that are finding these things out. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You see something over and over again, repeated like that. And it's, it's not often, not, not something to it. Yeah. Alora, what did you have a, did you want to add to the flying ointment? You got a recipe girl? Um, yeah, yours. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) (laughs) to be completely honest. Um, the one that you gave me that is not published, I think is my favorite. Oh my God. I don't even remember what all that entails. So, (laughs) well, it definitely has mugwort in it. Okay. Um, I can tell you that. And I'd have to, it's in my, it's in my email. I keep it in there because I'm like, I cannot lose this. All right. But yeah, I mean, as far as formulating flying ointments, you're my like go-to. Oh, geez. Thanks. I'm not even the expert. So that's flattering. No, you're, not an, you're not an expert, <laughs> but you've definitely done more. I'd, I'd say more experimentation with it than I have. So as yeah. far as formulations go, you're, you're my go-to person. Well, thanks. Um, I would say like, I, I'm not like, I'm not the, the, as scientific as Kobe. So it's not going to be as cool as soot, but, um, I add things to my, (laughs) I add things to my flying ointments that maybe aren't orthodox. I don't know if that's the right word, but sometimes I'll put in like a feather or, um, butterfly remains, or I've also used splinters from my fence line. I think about Mm. like crossing the hedge, um, things like that, that represent flying or crossing the boundary between here and there. I'll use sometimes. There's there's also an herb that I've seen in a lot of flying ointment recipes. Like, well, I don't know. Like, I've seen it in a lot of recipes and I have never tried it, but um, Dittany of Crete is added. Mm. So I love that one for incense. Yeah, definitely. That's a great one. That's how I use it. I just, I use it in incense blends. Um, but as far as putting it in an ointment, I think it would be amazing too. It's got a really nice, like oregano kind of a smell to it. It's very herby. <laughs> very herby. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So your book, The Poison Path Herbal, the description says that it's part grimoire and part herbal formulary. And it also contains poison lore, history, and gardening tips. And I know you can't tell us everything that's in it, but can you give us maybe some of your favorite parts? I know super hard. It is so hard. (laughs) It's so hard. I know like once people read it, they will kind of know what it, what I mean when I say this, but the way that I wrote it, is in a language that there's a lot of stuff that's kind of in between the lines and a lot of inferences that I make, um, you know, about the plants, about their symbolism, different things they're connected to. Uh, and just the way that it reads to you is, is, is poetic in some of the sections that I think a lot of um, witches, magical practitioners, uh, you know, specifically of the more folkloric variety or the left-hand path, there's gonna be a lot to absorb and appreciate and a lot of, you know, nuanced little connections that I'm hoping people pick up on um, because that's really exciting. But, you know, a lot of the the primary sources and historical information and things like that that I was talking about earlier that have been like such a a guiding force is, is definitely a huge part of the book and just kind of my concept of the way that I organize things. in sort of this three-part category based on um, 
three archetypal energies that I see as like a recurring theme throughout traditional witchcraft um, that I explained using the planetary energies of um, Saturn, Mercury, and Venus. I noticed that on your website when I was looking through your blog, the Saturnian herbs, and I was like, ooh, this is cool. So you, <laughs> that's in your book. Very cool. Yep. Yep. And of course, there's a lot of um, formulary information. Um, so there's recipes that go along with each little plant profile, um, you know, so how to actually create these formulas using these plants and, you know, what they're used for and what to expect when um, consuming them and using them, you know, just to give people sort of an idea of, you know, what to look for as part of the experience. So it's very practical, very hands-on. Um, and then there's a large portion in the back that has all of the growing, um, cultivation, harvesting information, and then a really extensive um, bibliography and further reading um, resources for people interested in studying more about the poison path. Well, I have to say, if you are half as good at writing as you are at articulating <laughs> and speaking, uh, the book is amazing. <laughs> right. Because oh my gosh. <laughs> You'll be blown away then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> but, well, but the way that you speak about these plants is lyrical and mm -hmm. melodic. Like I could just sit here and listen to you talk about these plants this way for mm -hmm. hours. For sure. Agreed. Thank you. I could do Ditto. it. Ditto. <laughs> I could do it. <laughs> All right. So Kobe, your website, the poisonersapothecary.com sells occult poison artifacts like poison rings, poison pendants, as well as a subscription box and other deadly goodies. If some of our listeners were interested in buying your poisoner's box, could you maybe give us an idea of maybe some of the kinds of things that would go into it? Yeah, definitely. So that is kind of a collection of products that I, I do on like a seasonal basis. And it does kind of give you an idea of sort of the variety of products that I offer. Um, they're generally built around a specific theme. Um, that sort of pertains to, you know, magical practice, the poison path, all, you know, within that realm. And it consists of, like, various oil formulas, um, ointments, I've done incenses, seed packets, um, just different spell oils, different little, um, like, artifacts. So, um, like, one time I did the, the adder's tongues, which are basically just... Um, petrified megalodon shark teeth and people used oh. to believe that they were um, snakes tongues and they would carry them as talismans to protect against poisoning so different things like that that just have some kind of connection to poison lore or poison history in some way and just to sort of showcase the different qualities that the baneful herbs have because they they do all have their own unique sort of qualities um, so they showcase that I need a megalodon tooth. <laughs> what? That's awesome. Oh boy. Well, I love, I love how you said that it's seasonal mm -hmm. and that it is themed because I think that that's a really cool <laughs> and be very, uh, occult and witchy because we live by the seasons, right? So it does make sense for that to be the case. And I, I also that. think like just the variety of stuff in the box, right? Because, you know, usually herbal boxes, you think, okay, you get a, a packet of the herb and then some information and a crystal. You know, that's about it. <laughs> yeah. They throw a crystal in there. Sorry. Oh no. I'm not, I'm not a crystal pusher or anything. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but I did see. Cause Kobe, me and you we're we're Facebook friends. And I did see you posting about sticking. What was it? Bella? Was it Belladonna in a skull? Yes. I, yeah, I, I put Belladonna in everything. 
<laughs> yeah, it was the berries. You were putting little berries in these tiny crystal skulls. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, like had the little resin mold. Um, I didn't really know what to do do with it. And I was making another piece of jewelry and just stuck them in there. It's like, oh, we'll see what this looks like. And then took it out and it just like perfectly encapsulated it. So it's just like this little black and green skull. Um, I'm actually gonna use them as little bottle toppers for some of my little potion bottles. Oh my God. That's yeah. Funny. And the other thing that I saw you, well, I don't know if I saw it on your website. I think I saw it on your website. But you do uh, smoke wraps. Now, I don't know if it's like a formula that you sell, but it's basically like, I don't know how to describe it. It's like rolling papers, but made from poisonous plants. Yeah, the pre-rolls. Um, so they're, yeah, that's they're it. Made, yeah, from the, <laughs> the raw little paper cones um, that people put cannabis and all other sorts of things in. Um, but these are just different herbal blends using ethnobotanical herbs. So they're not necessarily poisonous plants. It could be things like um, Damiano, which has an aphrodisiac effect, or Blue Lotus, which is really good for like trance, meditation, dream work, um, you know, different, different things like that. Mm, yes. That's yes. Cool. I actually have a blend right now that I haven't used yet, but it has Damiana and blue Lotus and pink Lotus and something else in it. But I've done yeah. the Damiana tea before, and I don't know that it like made me Randy or anything, but like <laughs> <laughs> it definitely had like an, a euphoric effect. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, it does have that euphoric effect. It's very warming and stimulating and it increases circulation, which is actually what a lot of aphrodisiacs actually do is increase oh. blood flow to certain parts of the body. Ah, <laughs> learning things. Get, I'm learning. Got to get more blood to the nether regions. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> okay, so from your website, there is a beautiful excerpt from the art of the poisoner that I am going to read because, um, I just think everyone needs to hear it, but I also think it brings up some interesting points. So here we go. Intoxication is the art of the poisoner, the witch and the seer three ancient vocations inextricably linked and often practiced by the same individuals. These forbidden arts have found survival in secret places under the cover of darkness spoken of only in whispers to avoid the scrutiny of contemporary society to delve into this world is to be in the company of those who would pull the very strings of life and death for knowledge, power, and personal advancement. The chemically active compounds found in these plants in their most elevated form serve to open the participant to spiritual experiences in this capacity. They are known as entheogens, a term that translates to mean bringing the divine within Ooh. divination. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't know that. Ooh. <laughs> divination invocation and all forms of spirit work are facilitated by this entheogenic quality to the practitioner. Their use is sacramental plant sacraments have been part of human civilization since the dawn of time and have been used to expand consciousness and enter altered states to retrieve knowledge or power for a desired outcome. Utilizing plants, including cannabis, magic mushrooms, and opium, ancient people altered their consciousness to connect with the spirit world. This is always done so in a ritual context with reverence to the spirit of the plant. Along with their divine gifts and inspiration, they also have a dark side, the ability to cause insanity and death. Okay, hmm. let's digest that for a second. Everybody take it in because that was a lot. <laughs> I loved it. Okay. So the first thing that I want us to address is how being a poisoner is to be a witch or a seer and vice versa. So Kobe, since this is on your website, <laughs> tell us how you've identified with that. Definitely. Um, so I chose, uh, the name the poisoner's apothecary just because it really resonated with me and 
sort of how I defined myself and my own practice. And I wanted to play a place to sort of share that with other people that sort of felt that similar, <clears throat> similar current there. Um, so it's, it's poisoners in that we're, you know, we're all poisoners. All of my customers are poisoners. Everybody is, is a poisoner. It's the poisoner's apothecary. So it's where all the poisoners go for their things. Um, and I did that in sort of a nod back to the, the ancient idea or the ancient concept of the word poison when we look at its etymology, um, you know, in, in Greece and Rome, looking at the Greek and Latin terms, um, beneficium and pharmacon, the, the two terms were, were interchangeable for something that was medicinal, magical, and poisonous all in the same token. So the ancient understanding of how these different ethnobotanical plants worked is sort of that understanding that is a mindset that is important to be in when you're working with them and that just recognizing you know, all of the different components of the plant, the chemical properties, the spiritual properties, the magical properties, all sort of working together to make this pharmacon um, or pharmaca, which is um, this sort of magical divine substance or entheogenic substance that um, would have been used throughout the ancient world for these various rituals. Um, so sort of connecting back to that and then to um, in the ancient world, people that were often accused of witchcraft were often simultaneously accused of poisoning. Um, so the two acts were often seen as one in the same. Um, so yeah, it's just a, it's just a really interesting connection there. And uh, witches, poisonous plants, people that work with the spirit world or people that are seen to be sort of taboo or on the outside of society all sort of fall under this common umbrella uh, within this terminology. Um, so to be a poisoner is to not to poison people, but to have that understanding of you know, the power of these plants and their potency and the understanding that the very same chemicals that make them poisonous are also what make them medicinal and make them capable of changing and altering our consciousness and things like that. Mm. Spelling some of the, the misconceptions that there are with that word. Um, and that's why I also write the word intoxication the way that I do um, with the hyphens you know, specifically focusing on the word toxic. Mm. Um, you know, every, every time we go to the bar and have a drink, we are poisoning ourselves. <clears throat> Good point. <laughs> uh, it's just uh, an understanding. I thought about that before this, um, before this podcast, I was thinking, you know, my one real poison is definitely alcohol. It's not good for me. So. And it's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really common one for a lot of people, nicotine, caffeine, all mm -hmm. of these different substances, you know, we could technically consider poisons and, and they, they're just substances that alter our brain chemistry in a certain way. And if we have too much of them, they have sort of adverse effects. Um, exactly. Yep. Alora. Yes. <laughs> so did you want to talk about plant spirits? Yeah, I can talk about plant spirits. Yeah. I was going to say, don't ask me to follow that because I just can't. <laughs> well, I think, okay, well, I will say the one thing that it, he's been pretty much saying all of this already, yeah. but my, my response was, you know, I just see poisons as being inherently linked to the underworld, um, mm. meaning at, uh, to spirits as well. And as are we as witches and seers and poisoners as well. So it only makes sense that uh, witches of whom can see or sense the other world will also be drawn to plants that, you know, bridge that gap between here and there. Yeah. Again, they're Which is what he's been saying. Spaces, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're liminal, liminal tools. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Plant spirits. Let's have a chat really quick about plant spirits. So Plant spirits actually, for me, have been coming up quite a lot in recent, I, I would say in the last year or two, um, because 
I, I love that. Okay. So I've never formally studied herbalism because at the time, like back in the day, um, a lot of spiritual practitioners didn't really include the spiritist aspect of herbalism, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the plant spirit wasn't addressed. And I felt like that aspect was missing and I wasn't gonna, I didn't want to undertake study where that wasn't a thing. Um, so plant spirits have been honored in anim- animistic cultures forever. Um, according to modern anthropological data, the indigenous people of a specific region and culture developed complex classification systems for the local f- flora in their area, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, they then developed superstitions and spiritual practices as a means of environmental and population control. There are anthropological theories, for instance, that say the Aztec and Incan deity temple art the images that reflect beings with big wide heads and facial features with large eyes and giant pupils are the result of entheogenic use by the indigenous peoples of those cultures. Hmm. So knowing that then begs the question, which came first ritualistic deity worship, which uses poisons as a means to have spiritual experiences or using poisons that then create deities, which can be ritualistically worshiped, um, thoughts, feelings. Yeah. A little bit of the, you know, what came first, the egg or the chicken? (laughs) No, that's awesome. I, I, it's, it's a very good question. It's a cool thing to think about really. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, I was going to say like Kobe in your research, have you come across this particular thing and do you have an opinion about it yeah definitely (laughs) and go (laughs) you're first (laughs) well i you know i feel like i feel like it's a little bit of both right so Mm -hmm. i feel like definitely there were people i mean look back in the day of ancient cultures Um, there was no other means of testing this stuff. I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Then to eat it and see what happens. Right. I mean, like Mm -hmm. if that guy over there is dead, you don't want to eat as much as he did. Right. (laughs) I figured that's the way it was. So I would definitely say that it's both. So there were definitely people that came up upon an entheogenic plant, had an experience and then were like, okay, I've seen this deity. I've communed Mm -hmm. with this deity now, whether or not, um, they were mistaken deity for plant spirit, perhaps don't know. Um, but also I think once these deity figures were established, it was just common practice at that point. And then to go and commune with the deity, you need to eat this. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? It, mm-hmm. You know what? The power of suggestion too, right? So someone has an experience, you know, they eat something that, you know, a mushroom or something that no one ever had before. They have an experience with the spirit and then they come back and they say, eat this mushroom, you'll see God, you know, and then more people have that. And yeah, exactly. I agree with you, Laura. I think that's a good I point. I mean, and you can even, you can even see it in modern day, um, entheogenic rituals with like ayahuasca, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the really big ones that people talk about. So, mm-hmm. all right, Kobe, chime in. Yeah, I agree. I do think it is kind of a, you know, chicken before the egg sort of a, a question. It is definitely an element of, of both. Um, I do think that the, the entheogenic use of plants does definitely tie back to an earlier, um, you know, pre-state sanctioned religion kind of a time when we were, you know, still nomadic, still shamanic, um, still connected and and living to the land. And for a very long period of that history, you know, thousands and thousands of years, magical or spiritual practice was based around not so much what we're basing it around as sort of connecting with these others, um, but more so an observation of the environment, the natural world, the immediate surroundings, and then that what that meant to the people and what the, the spirits were trying to communicate through the, the natural surroundings. So it was kind of this period of 
learning to communicate um, with the spirit realm. And now that we've sort of got all of this collective unconscious information, our, our magic, our spiritual practices may be aimed at a slightly different direction than what it was 10,000 years ago. Um, you know, so I think that the spirits were always there and, you know, people were consuming these plants and observing the effects and observing the natural realm for a long time before necessarily knowing, you know, what the effects of all of these things were. Mm. Um, so I definitely think there is, is some kind of a component in that humans were guided in, in some way um, to start using plants in this way. And there's even the theory that the Amanita muscaria mushroom was eaten by, I think, early Neanderthal or prehistoric humans. Um, and that was actually sort of what kick-started our you know, rapid evolution to where we are now. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, Just blow my mind there. Learn, <clears throat> excuse me. Once we start to see kind of the the entheogenic sacraments of shamanic mankind, that earlier pre pre civilization, you know, now it's being kept by this caste of priests who's ordained by the state and it sort of becomes like this sacramental thing or this this thing that's now sort of kept secret and it's only you know only allowed for a select few people to experience it or know about it and so like the nature of it kind of changes and I think that's kind of maybe where the the taboo eventually started to come into with a lot of these things Mm, good point wow yeah, it would be interesting to see, you know, to see that world open back up um, to be more inclusive um, and not just selective upon culture, because let's face it, I mean, plants exist everywhere, right? So I don't, I don't know, I don't feel like any kind of plant work or medicine can be closed off, Um can be a closed practice because literally you're closing plants. Um, I do think that certain cultures um, that have formulated particular rituals and things like that, that's a different story. Um, But plants in and of themselves, I think that they're for everyone. And I wish that we had greater access or easier access to this kind of information because I Again, you know, nowadays it is taboo and it is hush hush. And I feel like that does us more of a disservice than, than a service as, as a human culture, because we don't even know the things that grow in our backyard, um, Mm -hmm. or the, the poisons that exist in our backyard. We're so terrified that the, you know, they're going to hurt us. So we don't dare explore that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a shame. Mm-hmm. It is. I agree. Although I know some of the poisons in my yard, but I would agree with you that I do not, I have not consumed them. <laughs> and that is a shame. <laughs> You're funny. Why is that funny? <laughs> Just the way that you said that. <laughs> Why? Cause I'm like, I'm trying to sound cool and smart, but I'm really a chicken shit. I'm like, yes, I know the poisons, but I have not partaken of them. <laughs> but it's just because, like I said, I mean, I think that that information has become so taboo and mm-hmm. you really have to dig, right? Oh yeah. To, f- to figure it out. And um, yeah, that's, that's the shame part, I guess, for me is that I wish it was more readily accessible. Agreed. Even among the magical community, you know, it's, it is sort of treated with disdain by certain groups of people. Mm. Um, you know, you have the people that are just very negative towards it. And then oh, you have the, yeah. like the well-meaning people that are, you know, very interested. They just don't know where to go. They don't find the information. And then you have this select few people that have had this information or, you know, kind of known about it for a, a few years and maybe weren't that forthcoming with it. Um, so it is, it is definitely a matter of lack of accessibility and, you know, people willing to 
share information. Um, but I think that that's something that's going to change you know, very, very, very rapidly. I think and a then, lot of people too, just are scared of herbs in general. Like I've, I've actually had people tell me that I, <laughs> one of my tea recipes that had elderflower and rose hips in it, someone told me that I was poisoning people with those ingredients. Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh, go get your celestial seasonings box out of your pantry. I'm pretty sure both of those ingredients are in most of their teas. So I don't know. Anyway, people Western are just so scared of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, another thing to add to that is within societies and countries and so forth and so on, people have become used to governing bodies that tell them what is Mm -hmm. healthy, what is not, what is okay to consume, what is not. And so herbalism falls very much outside of those boundaries. Mm -hmm. And because there's no governing body saying herbalism is okay. You know what I mean? Well, no, because you look up an herb online and the first thing that pops up is, you know, whatever, you know, the main medical sites and they're like, could be toxic. Don't ever, you know, use this unless you've consulted with your doctor. And it's stuff that's like really basic herbs, you know, (laughs) like, yeah, but I don't know, basil or something, you know, it's a bit much. Yeah. But you also have to remember, um, websites like that are always going to promote Western medicine. Well, yeah, um, of course. That's the point though. They don't, they don't want anybody anyway, this, we could go off on a especially, tangent on this, but. <laughs> especially in capitalist societies, right? For sure. Because that's how they make money. So mm-hmm. yeah. Anyways, we'll get off that soapbox. Yep. We could do a whole episode on that. Write that down. <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that we are ready to wrap it up. Well, first of all, let's, we'll thank Kobe for joining us because this has been freaking awesome. I've learned so much. Wildly expansive. So thank you so much for coming on and helping us explore this amazing topic that you are obviously an expert in. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. (laughs) Yes. For sure. All right. Well, we welcome you to join the Otherworldly Oracle High Vibing Facebook group. Become a member of otherworldlyoracle.com and visit my website at alorarain.com to grab your seven day free trial subscription to Mimir's Well. Shout out to everyone for joining us, whether you're new or returning. Share Mimir's Well webpage on Alora's website, my website, to recruit your witchy friends into our mystical hour of taboo topics and controversial studies. Once again, a huge thank you to Kobe Michael for joining us and guiding us through the deadly beautiful land of poisons. His new book drops October 12th, and you can pre-order it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Booktopia, Book Depository, and pretty much anywhere that sells books. Retails for $19.99 US and would be a wicked addition to any witch's library. Until next time. And remember, despite our sweet reputations, we really have the hearts of men on our altars that we keep in jars. <laughs>